Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is sponsored by Freedom Mortgage, dedicated to veterans and your homeownership needs. Visit freedommortgage.com forward slash CBS Vets, NMLS 2767, Equal Housing Lender. A new documentary series on public television, The Vietnam War, offers a 10-part, 18-hour examination of one of the United States' most controversial conflicts. Filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick have been using events surrounding the documentary's premiere to engage veterans and other Americans in a conversation they hope can be healing. On September 14th in New York City, they gathered a group of veterans at WCBS News Radio 88 to discuss how the veterans' experience has been similar and different for men and women leaving the military after service in Vietnam and in Iraq and Afghanistan, and for their families. The conversation is moderated by WCBS News anchor Steve Scott. Joining the filmmakers for this conversation across generations, Marsha Four of the Vietnam Veterans of America, Zach Iskell, a Marine decorated in the Iraq War and co-founder of the Headstrong Project. Dr. Roger Harris, a Marine who fought in Vietnam and then went on to a distinguished career in education. Let's join now the filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick and the panelists for the discussion as it was recorded September 14th in New York City. I'm Tim Scheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and I'm privileged and honored to welcome an audience full of veterans of Vietnam, of Afghanistan, uh, of Iraq, and a terrific panel of uh, folks here who will have a conversation about veterans with veterans. And the jumping off point of this event is all about a very special film that's coming out, a 10-part film that's coming out on PBS on Sunday, uh, The Vietnam War, which is a epic, landmark, 10-year-long project uh, a labor of love by two people behind me, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, uh, filmmakers extraordinaire. Uh, I read uh, Ken and I've heard him say that history is malleable. Well, and history is also a collage of colors when you include stories. There are so many stories in this room that I hope we get to hear from. But the more stories you hear about history, the different places that that malleable history gets you to. And that's what this film does. And hopefully it opens up some conversations. So I welcome uh, them here today. Our panel is um, hosted by our own WCBS News Radio 880 anchor Steve Scott, and I will give it to him and hear your questions a little later on. As well, if you have questions on Facebook Live, we're very excited to answer some of those as well. Enjoy the show. All right. Thank you very much, Tim. And again, welcome to the veterans who we have in the room today and the veterans and others watching uh, via Facebook Live across the country and around the world. We do look forward to hearing from you. Uh, let's meet our uh, guests today. Tim already uh, mentioned that we have Ken Burns and Lynn Novick here. They are the filmmakers 
the genius behind the Vietnam War. And we welcome them and thank them for being here today. Thank you. Moving across to the other side, we have uh, Zach Iskell, who is a an Iraq War veteran, and he is the founder of Headstrong. We'll be hearing more about Headstrong. Zach, welcome. <laughs> Vietnam veteran and vice president of the Vietnam Veterans Association, Marsha Four is here. Marsha, welcome. <laughs> and Vietnam veteran, Dr. Roger Harris. Dr. Harris, welcome. Now, as Tim mentioned, this is more than just about the film, The Vietnam War. This is a conversation, but we do want to set it up. And we have uh, some clips from uh, the documentary that we're going to be watching. Uh, Ken, we want to set up and, and Lynn, the, set up this first clip that we're going to be watching. Sure. We're so honored to be here today. You know, one of the important things we want to be able to say, well, often, and we said it before, thank you for your service. And that's a, a, an appropriate thing at any moment. Often that's the end of the conversation, not the beginning of the conversation. And so in a way, one of the many, many things we'd like to have come out of this film is a big welcome home. A lot of people, I think, particularly a lot of Vietnam vets, seem to have come home alone and didn't have the parades, but also didn't have a general societal welcome. And, and, and what we'd like to see is welcome home and how can we help you? And we're so pleased to be partnering today with all these extraordinary people to be able to, to do that. So I'd like to introduce the first clip we've been following throughout the the series of several marines and army guys and many vets uh from from every stripe and experience uh but no two more intensely than uh a a marine from missouri named john musgrave and also roger harris um he's in it and this is a clip towards the end of our our sixth episode when this question of coming home and who welcomes you becomes uh, a question not only for a returning vet but a returning vet who happens to be african-american who's struggled coming out of the roxbury neighborhood in boston sort of fighting and squabbling with uh, folks from the all-white south boston but finding when you got to vietnam that uh, the Viet Cong and the NVA didn't distinguish between the color of the skin. They were the enemy. And so we're just going to pick up with uh, a post-Tet moment when Roger Harris, one of the most extraordinary and brave human beings I've ever met and now happy to count as a friend, um, tries to come home. I land in California and take a plane from California to Boston, and I'm feeling good because uh, I've survived and, you know, fought for my country. And I got off the plane at Logan and I stepped out there and I'm just happy to be home. And um, I had my uniform on and walked out to the curb and the cabs just kept going by me. Kept going by me. And there was a state trooper that was standing there. And I, I didn't realize what was happening. And then he stepped in the street and he stopped the cab and he says, you have to take this man. You have to take this soldier. And the driver looked over at me and he said, I don't want to go to Roxbury. They don't see me as a soldier. You know, they see me as a nigga coming you know, and I live in Roxbury. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking I'm a Marine. I'm a Marine. You know, I just fought for my country 13 months in a combat zone and I can't get a cab to get home. Take us back. Was that 
uh, what a slap in the face and and welcome to reality yes and and to put it in context you know it was 1968 and uh probably the height of the civil rights movement and at the time boston was very racially segregated and african-americans and latino folks in boston lived in just a couple of neighborhoods the south end roxbury and parts of dorchester and um um, the city was very divided as the country was and um, you know being in Vietnam for 13 months you don't really think about that you know once in a while you know folks would remind us what was happening back home but as a soldier you think that you know, you're concentrating on, on surviving on getting home and everything is about getting home hoping that you make it home and um, and then to come home and the reception being uh, cabs just going, taxis going by you, and a state trooper having to stop. And and I remember, I remember when he said it. He said, "I don't want to go to Roxbury." I remember thinking, "How does he know I live in Roxbury?" You know, and then it hit me, and it was just, it was sad. But you know, that was a uh, not just for me. For a lot of African Americans, they came home. They had um, those types of welcomes, and even worse in some cases. I was, I was, I mean, do you, would you talk a little bit more about just coming home, having left the combat zone? There wasn't a lot of buffer between getting on an airplane and landing at Logan. <laughs> no, and what no. was that like? It's like to well, well, one day, and, one day, one day, one day you're in Vietnam, uh, and plane from Da Nang would take you to Okinawa, Okinawa to L.A., and basically 24 or 36 hours later, uh, you're home. So there was no transition. You know, and so <clears throat> the, the the transition is on a plane, airport, airport, home, you know, um, and, and you know, it was just shocking and, and disturbing, you know, discouraging, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sad but truthful commentary on our country and what was happening at that time. You had 13 months over there. Where there, in essence, there wasn't racism. You're all one team, and then you come home to your country, and you get that slap. It, that that had to be shocking. Well, interesting thing, and and I think it's in the in the book, uh, and and in one of the other episodes. Um, you know, in, in Boston, African Americans lived in Roxbury, Irish Catholics lived in South Boston, and from the time I was a little kid, you know, when you just hear the stories about. You can't get caught in South Boston, and South Boston is where the beach is. You can't go to the beach, you know, and and um, so you grow up, you know, realizing that you know folks from South Boston are the enemy, and they grew up thinking that folks in in Roxbury are the enemy. <laughs> and I ended up in Vietnam, and I had Boston Roxbury on my helmet. And this guy walked up to me and I said, "You're from you're from Boston, Boston." I said, "Yeah, I'm from Boston." And he said, I'm from Boston, too. I said, where are you? What part of Boston are you from? He said, South Boston. And then we both looked at each other. I said, I'm from Roxbury. And we looked at each other for a couple of minutes like, now what? You know, but uh, we became we became good friends and, and shared food, shared some of the atrocities and, and the tragedies. And it was it was crazy over there. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we promised each other that we'd connect when we got home, but it didn't happen. And then um, years later, you know, I had, when I got back, I was fortunate. And I spent a year at Quantico 
And then uh, I was fortunate enough to go to school. And uh, I graduated with a bachelor's degree and started teaching in 1974. And in 1974 in Boston, that was the um, first year of desegregation. The federal judge ordered that the schools uh, uh, become desegregated. And so they were busing black and Latino kids into predominantly white neighborhoods. And I got assigned as a first-year teacher to Hyde Park High School. And so the three most explosive high schools in, in the city at the time were South Boston, Charlestown, and Hyde Park High. And so I got assigned to Hyde Park High School. And just like the newspapers and the, the media had hyped it up all summer, uh, when school opened up in September, there were crowds of folks from the neighborhood who were, you know, throwing bricks and bottles at buses and yelling and screaming and, you know, and trying to attack the kids getting off the buses. And there was a lot of fights, fights out in the front of the school on the steps. And uh, the mayor had sent police over to the school, you know, to protect the kids and, and the staff. And this one particular morning, you know, there was a big um, tussle out there and a lot of pushing and then fighting. And, and uh, the headmaster was on the on the uh, uh, loudspeaker telling everybody to pull, <laughs> was like, pull back, pull back. <laughs> you know? And um, and people were rushing to school. And and um, I bumped into somebody, you know, and was a, was a police officer. <laughs> and I turned, turned out it was my buddy Jack Joyce from South Boston. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, so all this stuff is going on around us and we're hugging each other and laughing and joking. <laughs> And people are looking at, you know, black, black man, white man, what's going on here? You know, and we started teasing each other. I said, oh, you're stupid. You know, you're still wearing a gun and a badge. I mean, a gun and a uniform, right? I said, you still wear a uniform and a gun. You know, so he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a school teacher. I said, I went to college, man. I got a degree. So, uh, so he said, I mean, we were a little more raw than that with each other. And and um, and so he said, all right, well, you know, how much money are you making this year? And I said, $11,000, man. I have a I have a bachelor's degree, $11,000. He said, yeah, well, I'm making 22 with a high school diploma. You know, and so we're laughing and joking, but everybody's fighting and, you know, we had a ball. But we, we're still friends. We're still friends. And um Together the other evening in in Boston together, and I I thought it quite touching and a sort of sense of what things could become. That from the stage, uh, Roger was able to acknowledge Jack, and you could see the possibilities uh, of reconciliation that we haven't completely done with Vietnam on a big scale, and we haven't necessarily done on an individual scale. But when it happens, and it happens so in a way effortlessly that two human beings recognize their common humanity and their common experience i felt like we had just leapt over time and into the possibilities that we would all want to have happen for all the veterans coming back uh let's set up our second clip you want to tell us a little bit about this one yeah so um unfortunately human beings uh default to war all the time for as long as there have been human beings and I'm a little bit worried that that's the way it's going to be for all of time Um, soldiers coming home have a really tough time adjusting not just in the outer ways with jobs or cabs or things like that but the the battles that take place uh, inside are as uh, as important and a number of the vets who are kind enough to speak in our film have been able to detail this it's what the Greeks called divine madness in the civil 
Civil War. It was called The Soldier's Heart. In World War II, it was called Combat Fatigue. Uh, but it got a new name in Vietnam, a clinical name that may have been both good news that we knew what it was and it needed to be treated, but maybe bad news because it made it something less poetic and less something that communities could really embrace and love and hold. And so this is from our 10th episode, just a brief moment uh, of, of us as filmmakers, but also us as people trying to bring veterans home of the decompression of that. I remember I was with one of my daughters uh, in an intersection and some guy came up behind me and blasted the horn. When I came to my senses, I was on the hood of his car about trying to kick his windshield in. And I went, gee, and there's people all over looking. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. And then I started going, well, this is weird. And I sort of slinked back to my car and, you know, my daughter, she's about four, looking at me. Wow, what's that all about? And I'm going, what is that all about? I had no idea. I had no idea that was even related to the war. It is as old as war itself. The ancient Greeks called it divine madness. It was soldier's heart in the Civil War. Shell shock during the First World War. And combat fatigue in the Second. Following Vietnam, it was given a new name. Post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD. And what you learn is that PTSD doesn't go away. But now if someone honks the horn and it startles me, I'm still, my heart rate's still going to go up and it'll be there for five minutes and I'm like this. But 10, 9, it's just some asshole who's had a bad day at work. 8, 7, 6, it's not, no one's shooting at you. You're safe at 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 1. And I can control it. Whereas I couldn't do it before because I didn't understand what was going on. Adding to the pain many veterans felt was their country's eagerness to forget the war. There were few parades. In many ways, everyone came home from Vietnam alone. When I got home, again, my mom and dad were there, my brothers and sisters, my wife, and were embracing. And I couldn't relate to my wife or my mother what I had seen, what I had done in Vietnam. I could have talked to my brothers about it, but they they knew I didn't want to. And so it just uh, something unsaid, you know. Welcome back, Vince. Uh, you've been through the, the ringer, but welcome back. Powerful. Um, we're going to be hearing from, uh, from Marcia, who was uh, a nurse, and also from Zach, who uh, founded an organization that helps people dealing with the challenges of coming back. But I, I think this clip from episode 10 really segues nicely into our next clip that, that you call episode 11 yes. and it's a 10 episode uh, show. So explain episode 11, this clip and what we're going to see here. And then uh, we do want to hear from, from Marcia and Zach. And, uh, this and is a, a piece that's not actually in our film, but we're releasing it now because we found this moment that we filmed very powerful and we are excited to share it all with you. It was the first time it's been seen anywhere. Um, one of the veterans in the film that Ken mentioned earlier, John Musgrave, um, has spent many years working to foster sort of intergenerational conversation to impart the lessons he feels he and other Vietnam veterans have learned about 
how to come home and how to live with what he's been through uh, with the next generations of soldiers coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he regularly counsels veterans and active duty soldiers and was at the time we filmed him four years ago, part of a program, very um, small scale, meeting with there were three or four Vietnam vets and a table full of returning soldiers who were really struggling with some of the things that we've just been studying or looking at. You know, before we started, I would just like to add about John. He's been through the ringer as Vincent Okamoto's brothers knew his their brother had been through. He's seen unbelievable combat with Roger Harris up in I Corps being shelled continuously 24-7, um, losing lots of fellow people. He's himself in an ambush, wounded uh, tremendously. He undergoes, you know, more than a year of operations and convalescence, uh, undergoes uh, a, a radical transformation, but not before he slips uh, down into the depths of depression and has a round chambered in his uh, a pistol and, 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 and fortunately doesn't pull the trigger and has a kind of understanding and begins to climb out of something that he will never be able to fully climb out of. He's already admitted to us that he needs a nightlight because he's so scared of the dark from some of the recon missions he'd done as a Marine. And, and that even his kids are saying, how come we have to get rid of our nightlight? Daddy gets to keep his. And um, you, you, you really follow him as well as Roger throughout the film. And, and so there's just an enormous amount of poignancy to, to see that, that, that in the midst of his struggle, one of the ways he understood that he could best help himself, as we can all find in our lives, is helping others. The most powerful people in the healing process are you guys around the table. Amen. All right. The, 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 the clinical side can, can take it a step farther, but there's, there's absolutely nothing more powerful than, than you guys right here. Okay. Um, I'm going to turn it over to John for the, the last official words here. Life is worth living. Any struggle, it's worth it. We've been through hell already. We don't need to put ourselves through any more hell now that we're home. The enemy that we're struggling with now is as deadly as enemy any enemy we've ever faced on the field of battle. Only it's inside of us. Kurt said a very important thing about it. It's a day-to-day thing. One of the things I used to do at night when I was holding my 45 under my chin was I'd say, John, you know, if you really want to do this, you can do it tomorrow. And I'd put it back in the drawer. And if you have moments like that, or you have buddies who are having moments like that, but just get another day out of it. And then next day, it's like being in the grunts. You put one foot in front of the other. And surviving... The war, after we come home, is putting one day after another until we've got it figured out. I'm so glad that I didn't kill myself when I was 20 years old when I got home from the hospital. I'm so grateful that I put it off all those nights for all those years. You know, sometimes when we struggle with a question, we just have to live ourselves into the answer. 
I know I could count on any one of you at this table if I needed you. I know I could count on you. I know it. And that's a great feeling. I feel like you were talking uh, directly to me because I felt I felt everything you were talking about as far as uh, feeling like being alone. I've uh, been been to a point where I just almost wanted to quit. My dog saved my life. <laughs> My dog saved me twice, just okay. by coming into the room. And licking, licking my face while I'm just pouring down in tears. Yeah. Um, so, everything you said, it, uh, it hit home and it helped me out. Thank you. Hey. Never surrender, right? Thank you. Thank you, man. I took a couple of peeks out into the audience while we're watching that, and I saw some some heads bobbing, some heads nodding, and, and we'd like to hear your feedback. Tim will have a, a mic out there. We'd like to hear from you. Marsha Four, who's vice president of the Vietnam Veterans Association, a nurse in Vietnam. Did you recognize the stress that that the soldiers were under at that time? We'll rejoin the event and hear her full answer to that question in part two of our podcast dedicated to the documentary series on public television, The Vietnam War, by filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. You'll find part two at ConnectingVets.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 